Luke chapter 9, we've made our way as far as verse 28. Let's pick it up there and let's read our text together. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And he was praying and the appearance of his face altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. We come to an account within the Gospel of Luke that is found also in Mark and in Matthew. Many know this Uh, account as the Mount of Transfiguration. It is a moment in time where Jesus takes a selected few of his disciples up on top of a mountain and reveals to them who he truly is. And he also uh, hopes to sustain a question that is constantly echoing within their mind concerning the kingdom of God. Many scholars have looked at this passage and wondered why all three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, include this particular account within their gospel writing. It's very unusual compared to the rest of their gospel accounts where we see Jesus as human doing incredible miracles on behalf of the Father. But now at this point, at this time, we find Jesus revealing himself to these three in a very, very unusual and unique way. Now the reason for this account and the reason for this occurrence, some have speculated and tried to to draw extremely complex reasoning for why Jesus did this. But I agree with those who believe that much of what Jesus did, though profound, often had very simple implications to the disciples in whom were following him and witnessing the events that Jesus rendered through his life. Let us begin by remembering the context of this particular account, and it is preceded in Mark and Matthew in the same manner. In verse 27, Jesus alludes to the fact after Peter correctly identifies Jesus as the Christ in verse 20 of chapter 9, 
Jesus then proceeds to describe what following after him is going to have to entail. Denying oneself, taking up the cross daily, and following after him. Now, this was unexpected because the disciples believed that the Messiah's arrival would usher in the kingdom of God physically here on this earth. And Jesus specifying that a disciple of his is not going to be one who finds prestige, power, and glory, but yet is going to be an individual who's going to suffer loss and, of course, going to be persecuted and hated by this world. The suffering aspects of the Messiah was a uh, complication in the profile that the Jewish leadership, that is the religious leadership, had drafted concerning the identity of the Messiah. They didn't understand why a Messiah who is going to lead them to ultimate victory would ever be equated with one who also would suffer. Not understanding that the suffering was going to be experienced at his first coming and that his victory was going to be experienced at his second. The disciples now needed to be prepared for what lie ahead for them. We know that 11 out of the 12 were martyred for their faith in a very brutalistic manner. What prepares one mentally for such an occasion? How is it that individuals like the disciples who I fully believed began to follow Jesus thinking that they were going to hold offices of uh, prestige and power within the kingdom of God now are being martyred, are being persecuted to the point of death, they're being ridiculed by the world, and yet they were willing to do so for the person of Jesus Christ. What prepares a person for such an event? I believe the reason for the transfiguration upon this mountain was twofold. Well, really three. Number one, it indicated to the disciples the true identity of Jesus Christ, who he really was. Second, it showed that the kingdom of God is at hand and will be ushered in through his hand. And thirdly, the glory that waits for Christ also waits for those who follow him. And so the disciples needed to be prepared. They needed to be uh, conditioned to understand why things were not going to go the way they anticipated. Even when you get to Acts chapter 1, Jesus has now been crucified. He rose on the third day. He's just about to ascend back into heaven. And Peter once again asks him the question, well, is now the time for the kingdom of God? Are you going to establish it now here on this earth? And Jesus turns to him and says, well, that's not for you to know. That's my father's business. And he'll usher that in when he sees fit. Paraphrased. The only uh, Eric version. Um, And as a result, Peter once again is put in a holding pattern concerning the kingdom of God. But here Jesus quite clearly says that the disciples, some of them, are going to see the kingdom of God firsthand for themselves. And they will not taste death until doing so. 
Many originally believed that Jesus was referring to his second coming when he made that statement. Yet that couldn't possibly be because the disciples were killed before his second coming. I believe that Jesus is referring to the transfiguration. That moment that he takes them upon the mountain to allow them an opportunity to see him as he truly is, confirmed by Moses and Elijah, who they themselves also had mountain experience, top experiences with God. If you remember, of course, it was on Mount Sinai that uh, Moses received the Ten Commandments, saw the backside of God, etc. It was on Mount Carmel that Elijah went up there to defeat the armies of Baal and see God work in the manner in which he did. Those are called mountaintop experiences with God, and Jesus selects these three out of his disciples to come and to experience this with himself. And as a result, I believe that he intended it to show them who he truly is, to confirm the revelation in which Peter had brought forth in chapter 9, verse 20, and also to show them that the kingdom of God will be established, but just not yet at this time. So we pick it up now in verse 28 together. Eight days later, after these sayings, he took with him Peter, John's, and James. And they went up to the mountain to pray. The selection of these three from the twelve, I believe, is is due to the fact that Peter, John, and James became leaders of the disciples later on, and Jesus selected them for more intimate teaching and purposes. It was these three that he brought in with the raising of the little girl, etc. And again, he is imparting to these three uh, a more in-depth understanding uh, of who he is and what he is here to accomplish. As being a pastor now for almost 30 years, before here I was an assistant at another church, I have realized that there are just some believers in Jesus Christ that want to go deeper and then there are others who do not. There are just some who really want to know the intricacies of God's Word and there are some who are just satisfied with just the surface information. I don't know necessarily why that is. I can't say that one loves the Lord more than the other. But there are those. And I feel that as a pastor and as a church, I have a responsibility not only to minister to those who want to go deeper and further in God's Word, but also encourage those who may not want to, to do so. Because I think we all should. Now, I don't know that if Peter, John, and James showed any greater enthusiasm than any uh, other disciples, they weren't any more perfect than the other disciples. We know that Peter denied him three times after his crucifixion. We know John and James are the sons of thunder who asked to have, you know, hell of fire and brimstone cast down upon others who were preaching Christ apart from following Christ, or it appeared to him uh, apart from following Christ. So it wasn't their righteousness or perfection that God selected them, but God appeared to know that these three later would play major roles in what he was doing for the kingdom of God. Peter, obviously, played a huge role after Pentecost. John, of course, wrote the book of Revelation, 
who therefore, you know, even when they attempted to boil him in oil, he asked for a scrub brush, his ducky, and some soap because it didn't work. So he thought he would just take a bath. No, I'm kidding. I don't know if he took a bath, but he didn't boil. So they said, you know what, we just got to get rid of this guy. And they exiled him to an island called Patmos, where he was given the revelation that is now contained in the book of Revelation in our Bible. But yet they weren't perfect people, but God selected them for the purpose of going deeper. And they went up to the mountain to pray. What mountain is this? Well, many believe that it's Mount Tabor in Israel today, but there's a greater evidence that it's actually Mount Hermon, because Mount Hermon is closer to Caesarea Philippi, which we are given the location of in other Gospels. But that being said, as they were praying, verse 29, and as I should say, he, that is Jesus, was praying, the appearance of his face altered or changed, and his clothing became dazzling white. If you have the old King James, new King James, uh, it was glitterified, you know, it was glistening. Uh, Something took place, a remarkable experience had taken place there as Jesus was praying. I believe that they got to see him in his glorified state. While Jesus was praying, they got a glimpse of who Jesus actually is. They got to see past the outer shell of the human being portion of Jesus and to see him in his glory, which is really interesting to me. Again, the idea is revelation. God revealing himself to his creation. We know that the Bible tells us that the world around us, the creation itself, cries out to tell us that there is a creator. Romans also goes on to tell us that each individual also has the echoing of their conscience to allow them to understand that there is a God. But the specifics of God aren't necessarily revealed in creation or in the conscience of man. That requires a special revelation, and I believe that is done in two two manners. Number one, through the Word of God. And number two, through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to his disciples when they begged him, Lord, show us the Father. He said to them, of course, and you know this verse, uh, he said to them, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's interesting. Jesus is claiming the perfect representation of God the Father in and through his life. But here at this moment, the disciples get to see who he truly is. This revelation. And trying to encapsulate what they saw in the words and the vocabularies in which they had at their, uh, at their disposal, we find that his, his face altered in appearance and his clothing became dazzling white. And at the same time, verse 30, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. All three accounts tell us that these are the identity of the two people. And why these two? Well, both of them had mountaintop experiences. Both of them paralleled the ministry of Jesus Christ. We've seen those parallels up until this point. The parallel of Moses, the parallel of Elijah. We also know that Elijah was to precede the coming of the Messiah. 
And we also know that at his second coming, he will be preceded by two witnesses who I believe are Moses and Elijah. And as a result, they are discussing amongst themselves, in verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Now Luke is the only one who gives us that pit of information. It appears that they were discussing, this word departure in the Greek could also be rendered exodus, and he is talking and discussing about his crucifixion and his resurrection. Because he goes on to say that which will be accomplished at Jerusalem. He is discussing that this is what is yet going to take place. And appears that Moses and Elijah are there with him discussing the crucifixion and his death and his resurrection. And as a result, in verse 32, now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. You know, these disciples, they are given some of the best opportunities with God and then they choose to sleep, right? I'm glad that God is so uh, honest and transparent to show the frailty even of those who are considered to be apostles, such as Peter, John, and James. They're people like you and I. You know, I would like to tell you, well, you know, even though Peter, John, and James fell asleep, I wouldn't do it. Are you kidding? I go to sit down and watch a movie with my daughter, and before the opening credits are even finished, she's yelling at me because I'm snoring, you know. It's just one of those things. You know, we like to believe. But how many of you fall asleep during church each and every Sunday? Oh, Well, let me tell you who does. I have a list right here. (laughs) We have a camera in the back that Mike has put up. And I have a little monitor here that I can, you know, scan. And the lasers will be installed next week. No. Um, Yeah, right. And so forth. But they were sleeping. They were tired. You know, climbing on top of a mountain, I would be tired too, right? But something awoke them, verse 31. Notice here with me. No, I'm sorry, verse 32. They were with him. They were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, that is, Moses and Elijah parting from Jesus, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And notice what Luke writes here, not knowing what he had said. It was somewhat inappropriate for Peter to state this. Now, let us be honest and let us understand that he didn't have any ill intent by doing this. But making those little tents or tabernacles is actually what they are in the Greek. It was a portion of the Feast of Tabernacles where the individuals of Israel believed that God would dwell with them bodily. Remember when Jesus Christ came, John 1. It stated that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14 
of that same chapter, it says, Now the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It was God dwelling among us in the person of Jesus Christ. Peter saw this particular uh, experience and this particular moment as an opportunity to say, this is us dwelling with God. By setting up these tabernacles, he was also anticipating the establishment of the kingdom of God. He was trying to prolong the stay on top of the mountain. He didn't want to go back to the reality of this real world. This is good, Lord. Let us just stay right here. You know, I don't want to go back because down there they're going to hate us and they're going to ask us to do all these things that we can't do and it's going to be difficult and so forth. No, let's just stay right here at this mountaintop experience. But one of the aspects that was inappropriate is that obviously he wanted to make three tents for Jesus and for Moses and Elijah. And in some, the Jewish scholars believe that he was equaling all three together. And of course, Jesus is not on the same plane as Moses and Elijah. The Bible clearly tells us that Jesus is God. And that he, of course, is superior to Moses and Elijah. But though Peter had no ill intent, he didn't realize what he was saying. And as a result, notice what happens next. For in verse, let's see here, verse 34, and as he was saying these things, notice this, as Peter was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. There must have been something unique to this cloud because notice next it says, and they were afraid as they entered into the cloud. And verse 35, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. It is interesting. One Greek grammatical uh, scholar believes that the response of God the Father was to specifically interrupt Peter in what Peter was prescribing. Basically, you know, Peter... The cloud falls upon which undoubtedly was the Shekinah of glory. And Peter and John and James became afraid of the cloud. They knew something spectacular was happening at this moment. And then to hear the voice of the Father. I don't know about you, but at this point I probably would be unconscious, you know, looking for someone with the, you know, uh, receptacles to bring me back to life. But notice the three things that the Father established and confirms concerning the identity of Jesus. This is my Son. This is the Chosen One, or some versions have Beloved One. This is Him. Listen to Him. As a follower of Jesus Christ, I don't believe that we could ever understate the necessity of fully, truly understanding who Jesus is. He is not simply a mere man who is a mere teacher, who is a mere good person, who is a, uh, a mere good example. He is the God of all the universe come in the flesh on our behalf to pay for the sins of the world. 
He is the Lord of Lord. He is the King of Kings. And every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. Once you truly understand the identity of Jesus Christ, you have a responsibility to respond to that identity accordingly, don't you? And what is the proper response? How shall I respond to the knowledge of who Jesus truly is properly? How do I respond properly? Paul tells us how that we should lay our lives as a living sacrifice before Him. That's the only proper response. That living sacrifice could be summed up in these words. Lord, not my will, but Your will be done. How can we call Him King of kings and Lord of lords and not submit ourselves to His commandments? And Jesus says, well, if you love me, then you'll keep my commandments. What are those commandments? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what God is looking for you from you. Now, to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, there has to be a component that precedes that, and that is this, that we understand that He first loved us and demonstrated that love through the cross. And again, once you understand who He is and once you understand what He has done for you, is there any other proper response of worship and adoration than to lay your life before Him a living sacrifice? Not my will, but Your will be done. It's no longer all about me, Lord. It's all about You. Is there any other proper response? He calls Him His Son. That has caused great confusion because many then believe that Jesus is less than the Father, due to the fact that He has designated the Son. The Son is the second person of the Trinity. The Trinity is equal in essence in every manner and aspect. Though subordinate in the roles in which they play, for the Son has submitted Himself to the Father, and the Holy Spirit has submitted Himself to the Father and the Son. John tells us that. But these are roles and functions. It has nothing to do with the personal essence of each one of these. All three are God. They are all one, and there's only one true God. It's the doctrine of the Trinity. As he says here, the chosen one, he is confirming what Peter had said. Peter, you yourself called him the chosen one, the Christ of God, and you are correct. Now stop talking and listen to him, right? Stop it, Peter. These mountaintop experiences aren't meant for you to reside in continuously. They're meant to encourage you to get into the battle once again, right? I pray that our church services are mountaintop experiences so you're equipped and and ready to go into the world again to fight the battles for Christ and then come back once again and to hear the teaching of the Word of God be encouraged and challenged by it. But God has not asked us And God has never prescribed for us that we remain on these mountaintop experiences, these highs in our Christian life. And so Peter, with all of the, you know, with all of his heart, he desired just to stay there because he loved the Lord. He's thinking he was doing the right thing, but Jesus said, no, 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 no. It's time now to get back into it. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one of those days 
uh, anything of which they had seen. There are three things that I'd like you to take away with you this morning concerning our text and the transfiguration. Number one is this. We as believers in Jesus Christ here in the United States of America must do a better job of truly understanding who Jesus is and therefore responding to his identity properly. If we believe that Jesus is just our buddy, just our friend, our good angel on one shoulder, you know, opposed by the devil on our other, we're always going to interact with him inappropriately. Jesus Christ, again, is the Lord of Lords, King of Kings. If we say that we are followers of Jesus Christ and do not obey him, are we truly followers of Jesus Christ? Now, I am not saying that our obedience determines our salvation. But I will say this, that if we are truly saved, then we will seek to obey Christ. We must do a better job at fully knowing who Jesus is. Secondly, understanding the kingdom of God. Jesus inaugurated, I believe, the kingdom of God in his first coming and will establish it in his second. He's already gathering together those subjects within the kingdom of God in and through the church. The Bible says that we will reign with him in the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. And that we will be part of what he has established here on this earth. The kingdom of God will be established. It is coming, but yet know that it's already here and you're already part of it as a believer in Jesus Christ. And therefore, whatever allegiance I have to even the nation in which I live, I have a greater allegiance to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thirdly, I believe that Jesus knew that for the disciples to subject themselves to the torture and to the treatment and the punishment and persecution that they were yet going to experience, they had to know what awaited for them in eternity. It is not a natural thing to lay down our life for someone else. It is not a natural thing to lay ourselves to become martyrs for a cause. It is something either we choose to do through being determinate or that we are ushered into against our own free will. I believe that the true revelation of God, the understanding of, the true revelation of Christ, the understanding of the kingdom of God will allow us to subject ourselves to the persecution that this world will lay against us. Why? Because in the revelation that Jesus gave to his three disciples there on the Mount of Transfiguration, he showed them the glory that they too were also going to experience. Paul tells us in Romans 8.30 that the Lord who has started the work in us from the very beginning, the end of that work is that we will be glorified in him. Peter needed to know, John needed to know, James needed to know that everything in this world is temporal. That the eternal is what matters. 
and for me to give up the pleasures of this world uh, for, the, for the sake of Christ, to love Christ more to, than to love this world, to walk in obedience with Him, in contrary and in, in, to the standards of the world, I must know that there's something greater awaiting me in heaven. And that is that one day we will be like Him in such a way. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you're interested. He talks about the glorified bodies in which we would experience in and through Jesus. And again, I believe that these takeaways allow the disciples to lay their life down. I believe that these three takeaways, knowing who Jesus is, understanding the kingdom of God, and knowing that one day that we would be like him, Peter was able to allow his wife to be crucified before him because uh, if he were to renounce Christ, they would have stopped the execution, but he didn't. And then when it came to his turn to be crucified, he could again renounce Christ, but did not, and said to his executioners, let me be crucified upside down and not in the same manner as my Lord. What allows a person to do this? Knowing who Jesus really is understanding the kingdom of God and knowing that one day that we would be like him. 